Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, we're going to keep the birthday celebration going one more week with another often requested guest. It is actress and pop siren, E.G. Daly. So you guys know I am obsessed, as I've said many, many, many times, with movie soundtracks, especially of the 80s, and she was like the queen of those. She's on The Breakfast Club, she's on Scarface, she's on Summer School, she's on Better Off Dead, of course, which you're listening to right here. Everybody knows these songs. And the word that always comes to mind, you've heard me sing her praises on here, on Rock Solid, on Glory Days Radio, many, many times. The word that comes to mind for her is unmistakable. You hear that voice, you know exactly who it is, and it's always a welcome dose of magic, whether it's her own stuff or it's a song that she's singing on for somebody else. So I've wanted to get her on here for years, and it finally worked out, and I'm so grateful. And it's really interesting because it takes her, you'll notice in here, it takes her a little while, I think, to warm up to me. I don't know if she knew what she was getting into, and eventually, I think when she saw that my fandom was sincere, she came around and kind of warmed up, and I'm so grateful that she did. But what's also really interesting is she doesn't even remember singing on some of the songs that I love her for. Uh, Working with Giorgio Moroder, Phil Oakey, The Cruzados, all this stuff. It was like I had to kind of jar her memory. So she's done a lot of really interesting acting things, of course. She gets asked a lot about Babe and Rugrats. I purposely didn't go there as much, just because I, I want, the impact she's had on me has been musically. It's that voice. It's hearing that voice in those movies that I love. That's what I wanted to talk about. So I hope that's okay with all of you. I want to thank anyone and everyone who has sent suggestions for her over the years. We finally did it. And a huge thanks to Steve Cooper of the Cooper Talk podcast for helping me track her down. Anyway, she's a neat lady. I hope you enjoy this. She called me from her home in L.A. Your voice is behind some of uh, the best music, some of my favorite music for years and years and years. I feel like I grew up with it. And um, I'm curious, I believe you grew up in L.A., and I think you probably get asked this question a lot since you do a lot of acting and singing. Were you um, sort of primed from a very young age to go into show business somehow, some way? Where were you going to be focusing your attention? No, it really wasn't. I really wasn't primed for it at all. Hmm. Like, my parents were from Europe. They had no idea about Hollywood or any of that stuff. It was sort of just one of those things where... You know, I don't even know how it really happened, but nobody in my family had done it. Nobody in my family was from the Hollywood world. Nobody was lived here. My family was like the first generation here of like the Europeans. Wow. So it was kind of just like a random thing. And my mom just kind of got me a commercial agent when I was young. Really? Yeah, just sort of, you know, maybe it was something in her that she had a desire to do. And I didn't really like it. Mm. Because I didn't really connect to a lot of the girls that were doing it. They were all like perfect little girls, Mm -hmm. you know, like perfect little curls and perfect little Goldilocks and Mm -hmm. twinkly blue eyes. And I sort of felt like this weird little strange looking little girl, this little Jufro girl. (laughs) I didn't have anything very fancy or glamorous, so I didn't really get it. I just knew that I liked dancing and I liked singing. Okay. But she got me a commercial agent because my best friend was doing commercials, and my best friend was one of those perfect little girls. So my mom sort of followed along. And oh, do started... we know who that person is? Um, no, it's just a friend of mine named Michelle, childhood okay. friend. 
Okay. She's a painter now. And my mother just sort of followed the path and we got an agent and the agent changed my name to Daly. Uh-huh. And I went with it and I just didn't book a single thing for probably eight years. Oh, gosh. What you, how old were you when this all began? Maybe like eight. Really? Now, I think to most people, the first thing I remember is Valley Girl. What were you doing before that? Were there some commercials or some TV appearances and stuff like that? When I was eight, no, there was nothing till I was maybe 15 or 16 when I booked Laverne and Shirley. Oh, uh, that was the first one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I have a feeling you get asked about Rugrats a lot. So I'm purposely going to kind of sidestep that and focus mostly on your music career. Was your first thing, the first recording of yours that got any kind of notoriety, was that appearing on the Scarface soundtrack? songs on the, yeah maybe I mean that was older but I don't really remember truthfully I don't really remember oh. so many things I had done okay that, you know Scarface I was working with Georgia Maroder for a long time and I did a lot of projects with him I don't remember which one was the first thing but I think Scarface was just one of the most popular ones oh because I, I mean I remember you from you know uh Better Off Dead and um uh, summer school and all this stuff, but those were a little bit later. So I was just curious, what was the first kind of breakout announcement to the world of you as a singer, as a pop artist? I know Wild Child, your your first album, I think came out in 85 too, but I think Scarface was like 83. So I just wondered if there was like a moment where things really broke for you and you kind of got excited and felt like... I don't know exactly. I mean, I know when Say It Say came out, it was number one all over the world. So that was yeah. like pretty big...
that's when I did like Saturday Night Live and I did American Bandstand and all those big popular at the time shows. But I couldn't really tell you because back then you did the work and then a year or two would go by before you'd even see the work. Yeah, very true. So I didn't really sit around waiting. I just sort of kept moving forward and then I'd be pleasantly surprised if something became a hit because I never expected it. Right. And okay. then when my record came out and I had a number one dance it all over the world and that was pretty cool. I did a sure. musical called Tansy and that became really popular and that was what got me the record deal that ended up having the, the number one dance hit. So mm. it was kind of like one thing led to the next of just doing art, but I couldn't tell you timeline wise. Like okay. you probably better with the timelines than me. Oh, that's okay. I was, I ask mostly because I, I'm I always find the transitions in people's lives really interesting, you know, where you go from this struggling person who for eight years didn't book anything and then things start to happen. And then, you know, this worldwide dance hit, say it, say it happens. There's got to be a moment there where you go from this kind of actress who's, you know, hoping to get a job to, you know, a worldwide known singer. And I just wonder what that's like when that starts to occur to you and it hits you. And, you know, how does your life change? I think I was um, at the gym on a treadmill when I first heard Say It, Say It come on the radio. Really? Oh, that's great. I think I almost fell off the bike. I was like, I kept looking around at everybody on the bikes near me and I was like, that's me. That's me. I think that was pretty sweet. And I remember going to Florida to do some promotion and then walking along the beaches in Florida and it would come up on all the radio stations. I remember hearing it on the beach, you know, uh-huh. really cool. Um, it was just, yeah, it was just kind of okay. open, strange little ways. And then I would be like, that's so cool. You yeah. Know? But there yeah. was always so much more grinding to do after it. So I just sometimes found myself enjoying it for the split second and then back on the grind, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Those early years between Giorgio Moroder and then Jellybean Benitez and Stephen Bray on Say It, Say It, you really managed to align yourself with producers who were extremely hot at the time. How did... It was by accident, too. What's that? It was by accident? That all happened by what I call fate or synchronicity. I would just... I happened to have this friend of mine that was a manager. He managed Devo, I think, back then. And then he ended up being my manager along with this woman, Lori Rodkin, who's actually a famous jewelry designer now, mm. like high, high end. And they were managing me. And I think Billy, my manager, took me to a party at Lori's house, Lori Rodkin's. And then at Lori Rodkin's, Jellybean was there. And then Jellybean and I became connected there. And Billy was like, maybe you guys should do a song together. And Jellybean was like, yeah, cool. Yeah. That was when Madonna was really popular. And yeah. then all that stuff was happening with all the Madonna and Jellybean stuff. And then... Sure we sort of agreed to maybe do something. And then that night he invited me to the Grammys. So into the Grammys and then I ended up oh, dating right. him. I wondered about that. Yeah. Okay. We dated for a little while and then we ended up doing the record, doing cutting of, I don't remember how many tracks we did. And so everything just kind of flowed. You know, I was uh-huh. at a manager, went to a party, met Jellybean, went to the Grammys, decided to do the track together. I mean, a lot of it is getting in from the end. Yeah. You know, being in, inside, making connections and hookups. That seems to be where most of the great things came to me. So um, how did you get paired with Giorgio? And then I assume that working with him on those Scarface songs is what led to you singing backup with Philip Oakey.
I think so. Was Philip Oakey, um Lead singer of the Human League. Yeah, and no, you no, sang no, on no. Be My Lover Now. But was that produced by Jude Cole or was that produced by... That was produced by Giorgio. Philip and Giorgio put out a... Yeah, I yeah, I remember solo. that. Yeah. Because I worked with Jude Cole one time on a bunch of things. Right. Yeah, that's probably how the Phil Oki came because I was sort of a token singer for Marauder along with Keith Forsey who did Billy Idol. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of like this young, like 17-year-old who would just drive up to the house and track songs. And I never knew where any of them were going or what was going to happen in over years. Then I started being the singer and then I'd be sitting in a studio and then, you know, I'd all of a sudden get a, be doing the theme song with Foltemeyer for yeah. Deep Hearts. And then I'd be doing the breakfast club song with, you know, yeah. whatever. Georgia would have me do then I'll then I do the Scarface and then 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 whenever I get a call saying could you do some things with Phil Oki and I mean it was literally just being doing the work being in the places and things just opening up that is crazy what a charmed life my gosh we had on this show about a year ago Paul Engeman who you maybe you know him too he was also in that sort of Giorgio stable of singers he sang on the Scarface soundtrack too huh yeah. Cool, um, yeah. He was a great guy. So, okay. So let's talk about uh, The Breakfast Club. I yeah. uh, Do you know how you were selected to be on that soundtrack? Well, again, I was working. Was that Keith Forsey that produced that song? Uh, well, I I believe. Waiting. I know yeah. he produced Waiting. the uh, album. Waiting the, was Keith Forsey produced it. He's in the Marauder tribe. Got it. Okay. Really, I'm pretty sure it was Keith Forsey produced Waiting. Okay. Let me check. Yeah. I think he did too. Yeah. I yeah, know he produced the uh, Breakfast Club soundtrack. That, that was just me having worked so much with those guys tracking and demoing. So that song came around and um, I think it was just a, they just asked me to do it. I think it was just right for my voice. And Okay. Yeah. The reason I ask is because John Hughes is notoriously very meticulous about his soundtracks. He was such a muso. Yeah. And yeah. you get the impression that he sort of curated those things very carefully. And so the fact that you made it on there, I think, I mean, not only is that kind of a nice lucky break, but it says a lot about what he thought of you. And he was a real tastemaker at the time, you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. yeah. That's cool. I didn't really realize that again. I was just doing my work, sure. doing my art and didn't really get caught up in the who's, the what's, the where's. I was just like. <laughs> Oh, you want me to sing on that? Cool. I love right. that song. Or, oh, you know, it was more just like being open to being an artist all the time and things would fall into my lap. But it wasn't always perfect. I mean, there were a lot of years in between things where it was slow and where I'd have to do a lot of grinding and hustling. 
But yeah. people don't see that. They don't see the downtime. They just see the art when it finally sure. pops out. But they don't know that in between was a lot of grinding and hustling and marketing and self-promotion. And I didn't have any hookups, you know, and it's still kind of the same way. It's a lot right. of like, you got to set the ball, ball in motion. All right, great. So let's talk about Better Off Dead. Um, okay. That, uh, you know, that's an iconic movie. I grew up with that movie. You were lucky enough to be not only on the soundtrack, but selected to appear. Do you remember how that happened? I just yeah, interviewed that, Rupert Hine a couple weeks okay. ago. Yeah. Well, Savage Steve Holland was the director and I had known him from around and, and he had known me from around. And then apparently Savage told everybody at a screening of the movie, like a Q and A with all of us and Diane Franklin, that he actually wanted me to do one of the lead roles in that movie. Really? So, yeah, it was an interesting little bit of trivia, and I was kind of like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah. And then he ended up not casting me in the movie, but he thought, oh, I'd like to have you sing this song in the dance. And I was like, cool, that sounds amazing. And then he put me together with Auntie Rubin, who wrote those two songs, Just a Little Luck and the other one. They were great songs and I was like, okay, cool. So that was just another one of those, that was another twist of fate where I was actually being considered for being in the movie and then he oh. ended up saying, well, I'm going to cast this girl for that and I guess I'll, I'll ask each if she'll do the singing in the, yeah. in the movie. So that's how that came about, just having known Savage. Yeah, okay. In those early days, you're appearing in, you know, three, well, many iconic movies, but three big ones, Valley Girl, Pee Wee's, Better Off Dead. Yeah, was there... It was just luck. Um, what were you being... Luck and, and preparation. Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, you've got the talent to capitalize on these opportunities. Yeah. Otherwise, they would dry up. Yeah, um, I tell people, people are like, how did he make it? How do I get to make it? I'm like, be really good at what you do. Sure. Be the best. Be the best that you can be so that you're not just, you know, being insecure about what you do, but you actually feel really like you're giving somebody the goods. Yeah. At the time, were you was one taking off more than the other? Or, uh, you know, a singing career versus an acting career. Did you care which one you were focused on? Did you enjoy one more than the other? Uh, not really. I just really enjoyed. I really enjoyed singing and songwriting, and okay. uh, and I liked doing the movies. But it just seemed like the movie business was trickier because you had to jump through a lot more hoops, and that part seemed really confusing to me. And I was like. I'm really good at what I do. Just hire me. But then I had to do auditions and then I was uncomfortable with the auditions. No matter how many 
audition classes I took or mm. tried to be good at them. I just felt like I couldn't, I felt real uncomfortable with them. It was like a weakness yeah. in my, it was a chink in my wall. Mm -hmm. It wasn't good because then if I really wanted a role, I knew I could deliver the role, but if I had to really audition, I would always sabotage it somehow. So I think I would have worked a whole lot more if for some reason I didn't have that. And so that's been something I'm sort of applying myself to now is trying to figure out that and get some understanding about that part of my work that I need to kind of master still. Really? Yeah. How so? What, are, what, are, what specifically are you well, hoping to master? Well, I think like just there's a disconnect between like when I book a job and I do the work and I feel like I do good work. And when I have to go in and audition for one and that's sort of sterile conditioning and mm -hmm. people looking at you and people on their phones and have the casting people chatting amongst themselves. And, you know, that to me is just not about the art, but it's yeah. distracting to me. So, but you have to have peace with that and you have to be able to deal with that. And I just have always had a little bit of resistance to it. I believe it. I'm finding like with that resistance, it doesn't help me to have that resistance because you know, instead of trying to figure it out and have fun, it sort of blocked me for a while. It's blocked mm -hmm. me. There was a lot more roles I probably would have liked to do, but I kind of sabotaged my auditions on certain things. So luckily, my work was good enough to where people just started hiring me, and then people liked my work, so they'd hire me again, and then people would talk about me, and then they'd just straight hire me. So luckily, I've made a career anyway, but I'd probably, there's so many roles I'd like to do that I'd like the opportunity to Mm -hmm. to get that I'm still like I'm still dabbling in yeah I was going to ask you you kind of touched on it right now I assume maybe back during that height in the 80s you probably didn't have to audition too much I'm guessing people were coming to you saying we want you and what you bring in our film or on our show or whatever in the 80s that's kind of how it went in the 80s it was like there were even castings like looking for an Elizabeth Daly type mm-hmm and then I'd see it on my agents or manager and be like, look, they're looking for your type. And I'm like, well, why don't you just call them and tell them I'm available? Because a lot of the times they didn't think they could get me or that I wasn't available. And a lot of the times, most of the movies I did that were monumental were the smaller ones. Mm -hmm. The Valley Girls, the little ones that were culty that became iconic. So I would always tell my managers and agents, like, get me in on that. They're yeah. looking for me. Why are, why are they looking for a, a me type when they can get a me? <laughs> right. <laughs> It's a weird business. It's a I, real weird business. I've heard that before. Yeah. Okay. One more soundtrack. You're the queen of the soundtracks at this point. Mind yeah. Over Matter from Summer School. That's one of my favorite songs ever. Hey, gang. Let me break in here for a little bit. We haven't done a midsection for a while. And uh, we got such a huge response to the Steve Ferris art, uh, interview that I thought it only seemed right that I thank some of you. Not to mention... Mind Over Matter is one of my favorite songs, and I couldn't just let it be a short clip. So we're going to, uh, this way you get a little bit more Mind Over Matter in your diet. Now, uh, Steve Ferris for us really took off, and it, we got a ton of shares from all over the place. I'm going to try and read off these names. There's a bunch of them. Eric Garcia, Caroline Blue, Bogdan Passat, Johan Yostrom, hope I'm saying all these right, Jill Salt, Joey Key, Darren Scott, Shuichi Kinoshita, oh goodness, Save Rock and Metal, Paul Hicks, I.C. Gregg, Mike Wagner, Jason Simons, 
Marco Mazzucci. Mazzucci. Oh gosh, I hope I'm saying this right. Steve himself. Mr. Mister themselves. Stuck in the 80s, our buddy Steve Spears. Kerry Carlson, Anthony Porter of Three Chord Money. Hope you guys heard his song at the end of the recap episode we just did. Great tune, great EP. Go check it out. Uh, Daniel Nestor, Sonny Pooney of Save uh, or of Grown Up Rock, Pat Francis of Rock Solid, Jay Sabluski, Andy Solemn, Gregory Ray, and our buddy Joe Becht. Thank you to everybody who shared that episode. I really appreciate it. Now, speaking of sharing, get this. Maybe not even 24 hours after our episode with Steve came out, I got an email from one of our listeners, Hub Rajel. Hello, Hub. He sent me a message saying, have you seen this? And it was a link to a YouTube channel called We Are One. And I've never heard of this thing before. I guess it's a KISS channel that where they send out like really obscure uh, KISS interviews or whatever, things relating to KISS. They took the first like eight and a half minutes of our Steve Ferris episode and sort of repackaged it at and under, you know, with their own graphics on it and put it out. And it included my intro and everything to the hustle. What on the one hand I was kind of honored or flattered that they thought what we said was interesting and so they shared it with all their people. It's been viewed like 15,000 times or something like that in just two days. It was crazy. The thing that kind of bummed me out though is that number one, they cut they cut the, uh, the kiss part off after playing the Creatures of the Night solo so they don't get into why he didn't join kiss, why he didn't stick with the band or anything like that, the rest of his interaction. There were, it's funny, there were all these comments in YouTube saying like, well, what's the rest of the story? Why does this get cut off? And then there were all these comments about who's the moron doing the interview? Who's that guy? I hate that guy's voice. <laughs> it, was, it was humbling reading all of this criticism online of me. I, I don't, uh, I guess most of the, I don't hear that from you guys because you guys like us. So you, I don't get, you know, criticized for my voice or anything like that. But man, it was all over the place on there. It's crazy. And there was no attribution. There was no link of like, this is where we got this interview. So I sent We Are One a message and I was like, hey, I'm the guy whose podcast you took that from. You're welcome to take it. In fact, we've had lots of other people talk about Kiss. That Mark Opitz story for a live four was awesome. So I'll help you in the future if you want. Just put a link on there so people can find the whole interview. Never heard back from them. I don't know if I ever will. So it's just crazy. This little piece of our, I don't know, intellectual property, whatever it is, is out there on YouTube getting viewed 10 times more more than that than our episode did, but we don't get attribution for it. At least it does say that it's it's got my intro on there, so maybe people will find the hustle. I don't know. But anyway, it's kind of weird, kind of cool. Sort of annoying, but whatever. I also wanted to read some reviews. We didn't get any for a long time, and then we've got quite a few lately. So thank you to everybody out there who writes a review. Um, And most of them have been good, which I'm so grateful for. So I'll read some of them here, and I'll save some, read some next time or whatever. One of them was from Surly Almighty. It's five stars. Asks the questions most music interviewers won't. A uh, consistently great podcast that brings in a wide variety of artists and gets them to speak not only of the music they've made, but also what happened with the money. Can you live off the ro- quote? Can you live off the royalties of song of 
this song. It is a frequent question asked, a deep dive that's always a compelling listen. Thank you, Surly Almighty. I don't know who that is, but I'm really grateful. Thank you for that. Uh, another one, Parkord56. I don't know who that is either. It's five stars. It says John Lamoureux outstanding. That's so nice. Wow. Uh, it's short. Great, unique concept with amazing interviews. Thank you, Parkord56. Hope I'm even saying that right. I don't know who these people are. It's so amazing you guys even care. Uh, now, this one was interesting. Let me read this one to you. This is uh, three stars for from J Bro Music, fun, informative podcast. Three stars. Check this out. The Hustle is a really fun and entertaining podcast for those people who often wonder what happened to that guy or gal who wrote that incredible hit song back in the day. I like the fact that John asks about the guests' financial situations because I and many others often wonder how these artists stay afloat. My only minor criticism is that John interjects way, all caps, way too much while his guests are telling their stories. There are too many yas, wows, rights, etc. during his interviews, and it really makes some of the conversations very choppy and hard to listen to. He does ask great questions, though. If you are, now here's the funny part, if you are uh, interested in hearing a host who knows how to ask vital questions while staying out of the way of his guests, check out Brian Sword on the Double Stop podcast. Overall, though, John does a mighty fine job on the Hustle podcast. Highly recommended. Now, there was a lot of nice things in there. Thank you. There were a lot of criticism in there that I hear a lot. I haven't for a long time, though. And in fact, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, this sounds very, very familiar. So I go back into the reviews, and somebody early on wrote almost that exact same review. They were called McKishan. It was from about a year and a half ago, and uh, said all the same things. Too many wows, too many yeah, rights. Listen to the double stop. Do what Brian Sword does. I've already addressed all this. I really like Brian Sword. I don't want to be like Brian Sword. He does his thing. He does it really well, or he did. He doesn't anymore as often. And I do mine. And I've worked really hard to try and not be so wow and right and yeah about things. Hopefully I'm getting better. But I wonder if this McKishan. Uh, who only get who originally I think gave me three or four stars, and now that review is down to two. Uh, is the same person as J Bro Music because they said almost exactly the same thing. Interesting. The internet is a weird, wild place, is it not? I think it is. Now I wanted to read off a few requests. As I've mentioned before, I I am so overwhelmed with stuff I have already in the can and things that I'm pursuing on my own and previous requests that I'm kind of slowing down on taking requests. Plus, I stopped sort of reading them on here because it was the same handful of people sending me like request after request after request. And, and it just felt, didn't feel right to kind of read those things off every single week. So I sort of stopped, but I want to throw in a few from some new people that I thought were interesting. One of them is Ryan Berger and he requested Rachel Sweet, which I thought was a really interesting idea. She sang that great version of um, Everlasting Love with Rex Smith and uh, I guess she's kind of hard to find. I did a cursory search. I couldn't find her find her uh, off the bat, but I'll try again. Anyway, I thought that was kind of an interesting one. And then uh, Fernando Braithwaite sent a list, which uh, a lot of people do, and that's okay. Uh, David Page of Toto 
and Steve Lukather of Toto. Both of those would be great. I mean, I'm sure Lukather has a million stories, but I also feel like he gets asked to tell those stories a lot. So it wouldn't be unique or as unique as I try to be by having those two on here. But maybe I'm wrong. And I don't, I don't hear a lot from David Page, so maybe, uh, that would be, maybe that would be interesting. I don't know. I think about them a lot. I never do it because I feel like it's already out there a lot, but maybe I need to get over that. Tony Lewis of The Outfield, I'll tell you, uh, the very first request I ever got was for The Outfield. And I tracked them down. It was shortly after John Spinks died. And they said, you know, we're not doing anything. And I, because of that, and I checked again like a year later, same, I, same thing. I, another year goes by, I check again, still not doing anything. Finally, I see that Tony's working on a solo album. So I go back and I say, hey, look, I know you told me no before, but let's talk if Tony's working on a solo album. And they were like, great idea. I'll forward your information on to Tony and he'll get right back to you. And I never heard back. And that was six, seven months ago. So I've tried, I've gone back once or twice, didn't hear anything. I'm hoping, you know, there's a chance, I guess, that once this ramps up, Tony will come back and agree to be on the show. I don't know, but I would love that. He's been top of my list for a long time. Joseph Williams, son of John Williams. I don't know anything about him. I'd have to look him up. Andy Taylor of Duran Duran. I've thought about that as well. I think he'd be a really interesting uh, interview since he left forever ago. Luscious Jackson. I have tried, they were another, I've been trying them since the very, very beginning. And this, this was kind of annoying. I especially wanted to talk to Jill Cunniff because she put out a solo album that I like a lot. And I thought it'd be really interesting. And she finally, after like two years, wrote me back and said, you know, I know you've been trying to get a hold of us. Uh, I don't think we'd be that interesting because we're just regular working moms at this point. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. That's exactly why I want to talk to you. And I told her that and I never heard back. So I tried Luscious Jackson. They are not playing along. Maybe I'll try them again. Live, the band Live. That's a good idea. I left them alone because there's a ton of drama in there, but I think Ed Kowalczyk is back now. So maybe there's uh, something interesting to talk about there. Jan Hammer, interesting. Hadn't thought of that one. Sophie B. Hawkins. I, uh, I've thought about her. She's on my list. I may have to get around to that one. Trevor Rabin. So my buddy Ben Frazier recommended Trevor Rabin forever ago, and he was also on my list. I've tried him a few times. Uh, he, I don't, I don't know if he just does not want to respond or he doesn't do a lot of media, but whatever it is, I never hear from him. So I have tried Trevor. Believe me, I would love to. Mick Hucknell of Simply Red. I am in the middle of trying to make that happen. I will tell you, I don't know if I'm going to get to talk to Mick, but somebody else from Simply Red will be on the show. So... Something is brewing there. We'll see if it includes Mick. Glenn Phillips of Toad the Wet Sprocket. Interesting. Uh, a buddy of mine is friends with them, and I asked him to hook me up. And it was mostly his wife who was friends with them. And they were going to do it. And then my buddy and his wife got divorced. And so I don't know where that stands. Uh, I've heard Glenn on a lot of other interest interviews. He's fascinating. And as I've mentioned many times before, once I hear that, it sort of cools my enthusiasm because I feel like the story's already out there. But um, maybe I'll try that. We'll see. And then lastly, Joe Jackson. I think I've mentioned on here before. I tried Joe. I got turned down. Um, I love Joe. He's one of my all-time favorites. He's also cranky. And so I don't think he does a lot of this stuff. I heard him on Alec Baldwin shortly after he turned me down. I thought, well, that makes sense. Of course, you're going to be on Alec Baldwin and not The Hustle. So I don't know that that will ever, ever happen. And then one more I want to tell you real quick. Steffi Baker 
recommended Rupert Holmes, which uh, I got to tell you this story. So Rupert Holmes was another person I reached out to very, very early on. And his people came back to me and said, yes, he will be on. Uh, when do you want to do it? So I set about trying to schedule something and I never heard from them again. And I've tried a couple more times to get back in touch. Nothing. And in between those times, he's been on uh, Soda Jerker. He's been on Gilbert Gottfried a couple of times. The guy is a raconteur par excellence. And I'm so annoyed because he could have been on here first. I could have had him first. And now he's been all over the place telling his great stories. And I look like a, you know, a bandwagoner. And I wasn't. I was there at the beginning trying to make that happen. So anyway, it didn't happen. I don't know that it will. And I've cooled on my enthusiasm because he's been on a ton of other shows. So that's the deal. That's that's the catch everything up with you guys lately. And as you guys know, we have t-shirts out there on Amazon. Uh, just look for the Hustle Podcast t-shirts in the, or merch or whatever. They're out there. Go buy one. Let's get back to Eugene. Is there, I, I'm guessing that might be one of the more beloved kind of tracks. If you were to, do you have a sense of like what your fans consider to be maybe their favorite song of yours? Well, I would say that the Summer School soundtrack song was like the most like, as far as culty, fun, mm-hmm. people really like that one. But there's only certain people that get and know that one. There's a certain really very interesting culty following for that particular movie that really love that song. Yeah. And I would say the Scarface soundtrack was real popular too. But again, the waiting song was more just mixed in on the soundtrack. Huh. So people that heard that soundtrack really liked that that song. Yeah. Okay. Well, it sounds and like it's all over the place. Heap of Hearts became really popular with the gay community at one point. song had been out and popular and had this beautiful warm reception from the gay community which I loved doing like I do like shows and gay pride festivals mm-hmm. and that's sort of my team like my tribe I loved it was really a fun time and then I remember getting a call out of the blue a couple years later saying that they needed me to go to Europe because there was a resurgence in the clubs in Europe for the Thief of Hearts Love in the Shadows song that I wrote oh, with right. Harold Fultimar, so then I ended up going to London or promoting that song again. So it just had a weird resurgence that was quite, quite lovely, yeah. Okay. Um, I didn't realize until recently that Mind Over Matter, was that released as a single? Because I don't remember ever hearing it on the radio, but I noticed there's a professional, there's an actual video for that song featuring the cast and everything. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, they had us, they brought me in, they brought the cast back and they shot a real video. 
Was it a bigger hit other places? I, mean, I get the feeling maybe that your sound really, maybe it was uh, bigger or landed stronger in Europe. I don't know. Mind Over Matter became a top three dance hit all over the world. Did it really? Oh, we'll see. Yeah, I was, it was on Billboard as the top three record. Nice. And okay. on and the dance charts, and that song actually was recorded originally by Deb- Deborah Harry. Really? Yeah, because they had hired Deborah Harry, and then Michael J had written it, and then all of a sudden, I got a phone call saying they needed to recut it because Deborah Harry had some single coming out that was conflicting with this song, and they were worried that it would be conflicting on their release. Huh. So then all of a sudden I get this call and I'm like, really? Deborah Harry cut it and you want me to recut it? And I was like, okay. And then probably within 24 hours, I was flown to London to work with Stock Aikman Waterman, those guys. Yeah, sure. And retrack that song. So if you listen really closely to that song, you'll hear Deborah Harry on the background. So no someone, way. Yeah. That is killer. Right yeah. on. Okay. Now there's another song of yours that you sang back up on. That's one of the most, it's one of my favorites, and I, it's Time for Waiting by the Cruzados. said this before to people who will listen your your singing of your singing backup on that song is one of my favorite female vocal performances ever i just feel like what you do on that track sprinkles this already really beautiful song with a with this pixie dust that makes it just magical and i've always wondered how that came to be i know that tito was kind of a, a lifer down there in, in hollywood and in movies and everything like that. Did you guys just cross paths somewhere? That's so funny. I don't even remember singing on that song. Oh, are you serious? How that happened was I was dating Marshall Rohner. So he was my boyfriend, and I'm just going to pull it up one sec. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, what a great song, right? Mm -hmm. That sounds like maybe the live version, the recorded version that's on the CD. You come in in the... Oh, yeah. and you hit this note. Don't be it's afraid. Me. The way you hit that note, it mel- melts me every single time. That's really cool. Yeah, no, yeah. that was basically the, yeah, Marshall Rohner, who passed away, was my boyfriend, and he was in the Cruzados. And that's just all, that's all it was. It was just like Tito was okay. like, backgrounds. I'm like, hey, yeah. Okay, and then we got to talk about Jude Cole. Um, yeah. You appear on the View from Third Street album.
How did yeah. that happen? Well, Jude Cole was my roommate at one point. Really? Yeah, I was living in a house on Sunset Plaza when I was dating um, John R. Kexum. And Jude and I became roommates. I don't remember how, but through a friend or something. And then we would just sing together. And then he was just starting to become a really, he was just always a great producer. And he was always a great singer, too. And then he just called me and said, can you come sing on this I sang on a on his record and some other things he did. Hmm. Yeah, crazy, right? He was my yeah, roommate. That's I, wild. Plaza, um, yeah. He actually was there for me when the John Eric Hexum, the boyfriend I had, had shot and passed away. And oh. he was he was sort of this um strange support at the time that was sort of this guy that he was the only person I called when this thing happened with John Eric Hexum where he had accidentally shot himself in the head and I I didn't want to call anyone, but I did for some reason call Jude Cole. I called him at the house, and I was like, Jude, in the phone. He's like, what's up? And I'm like, John Eric shot himself in the head, and he started laughing. And he's like, and I'm like, no, I'm not kidding. He goes, come on, he cut it out. And I was like, no, I'm not kidding. And that was like the beginning of a weird thing. But Jude has a special place in my heart because we just, you know, he's my roommate. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. I don't I don't remember this story. Well, wow. nobody knows that story, really. Yeah. Okay. Wow, I've uh, I've tried to get Jude on here as well. I'd love to talk to him. Doesn't he manage Kiefer Life- Sutherland's band now or something like that? Lifehouse. He manages Lifehouse. Yeah, he's managed Lifehouse for a long time. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, yeah. I just knew he had something to do with Kiefer Sutherland. Did you hear the song I cut and covered that Lifehouse did? Um, I don't know if I did or not. I tried to keep oh, which which oh, one is it? Video. The video is called um, "Trying." It's on YouTube and it's oh sure. Honesty is a hard attribute to find When we all want to seem like We got it all figured out Well, I may be the first to say that I, I Don't have a clue Don't have all the answers And God, I pretend like I do Just try Find my way I'm just trying To find my way The best that I know how Well, I haven't memorized All of the cute things to say But I'm working on it Maybe I'll master this search for today If I could 
that's a cover of a Lighthouse song called Trying that I love so much that I actually cut the song and shot a little video for it. So check that out. Also, I think around this time you put out your second album, Lace Around the Wound. I don't know if you feel like your albums are reaching as many people as you want them to. What's How are you feeling about your solo career and kind of the trajectory at this time? Are you satisfied with how it's going? Um, I, I think it's happened now as opposed to, but I would love to reach more people because I think people would love the music. I just haven't, you know, I would love to reach more people. I think there's a lot of, my, even my old records people love, like the, the Tearing Down the Walls is a beautiful album. Yeah. You know, I just think if people heard that record alone, it's still so timeless. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd love to reach, I'd love to have it go viral and have just tons of people start awakening to the music that I've done because it's all been so autobiographical and deep and there's so much good music. I mean, like White Train and there's so much good music, The Walls. really cool to have a resurgence on have people have the opportunity to hear it all because it's out there yeah videos and i do a lot of videos like on my own yeah i can tell they're great there's a song called wait i recently put out or the last bunch of years and
somebody's loving you that's more kind of cute and you know so I just I don't know I just like I think it's just a matter of people more people getting to hear it and then more people share with people because that's just how it is they love it usually do you ever perform I mean I think you may play in like little clubs or something around LA what's your touring like these days well, I mean, I've just done like the whiskey recently a couple times where once I co-headlined with Missing Persons and then Excellent. that was most recent, probably this last year. And then I've just done that a few times and I just go there and my fans come and we pack it out and it's really fun. But I don't really, haven't been doing like a bunch of just like little band things because it's kind of a lot of work and, you know, um, I love it, but it's just, and my vans all show up. It's always like packed and mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it kind of has to be on a bigger, I have to be able to reach more people for me to put the kind of work it takes to, yeah. to do it. But I love doing the little intimate stuff still. Like my daughter just played at a, a little place and it was so cool. I love the intimacy, but I've done it for decades, you know, little yeah. small clubs. So after a while, it's like for me to put a band together and rehearse and pay them to go sing in a coffee shop for sure I for the love of it is beautiful however it's not really kind of a little bit of time deading for me I can imagine yeah do you ever get invited to play like 80s rewind festivals or something like that I could you do I could see you on the same bill as like Kim Wilde or something like that being asked to do something right now that's for like something 80s in the sand in the Dominican Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'm going to do yet it hasn't been locked down but if I do that, I might do the summer school song, but it's some yeah. fun, some fun week in the Dominican with like, you know, Taylor Dane, Taylor. Yeah. You know, yeah. What's her name? Taylor and, Dane. Sure. And, uh, who's a friend of mine actually in the wife's space out and, uh, <laughs> you know, Berlin and a lot of different bands are playing. And so there's, you know, there's a chance I might do that, but yeah, there's stuff that comes up where they ask me to do some of the 80s stuff, which is really fun. Good. I would think you'd be great at that. And those things are getting bigger and bigger every year. Yeah. 80s in the sand. I've always wanted to go, but I have friends that go. Yeah. And they, yeah. I might be there this year. Good. Oh, that'd be great. I'd love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Um, so when do you sort of, I don't know, is it when Rugrats takes off, is, do you sort of decide then and there, like maybe I'll kind of slow down the music side of my career? How do you go into making these kinds of decisions? I didn't really slow it down. I just Rugrats kicked in and I started having babies and mm-hmm. and then having babies was like, you know, I couldn't really, I didn't really want to leave my kids a lot or, you know, I didn't want to be that mom that just handed them off to people. I wanted to nurse them and really be 100% there. So voiceover just sort of happened and started to blow up and I had to kind of go there because it was, it just took off. So yeah. it was you know, I try to do what the next indicated thing is. And the next indicated thing was, wow, there's a huge light being shined on this area right now. I got to kind of run with that. Mm-hmm. But I was still doing music. I mean, I did like a song on the Babe soundtrack. I did mm-hmm. a song on the on the Rugrats soundtrack. I did a song and, you know, I was still, I did a couple songs in two different Cassavetes movies that we he did mm-hmm. that were produced by Aaron Zygman, who's like Academy Award winning guy. And Nice. Yeah, so I didn't stop doing music. I just did different versions of it, like either soundtracks or, you know what I mean? Okay. So one thing we kind of touch on in here as sensitively as possible is sort of the business or financial side of things. I'm always curious how people sort of, you know, maintain livings and stuff. I'm guessing you being you and the credits that you have, you probably are like the queen of mailbox money. 
at this point, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Not to be cocky, but yeah, there's a lot of years of a lot of dues, of a lot of hard work, of a lot of planting a lot of seeds all over the land. Yeah. Uh, film or music or writing or singing or performing or just using my voice. And then so over all those decades, you plant a lot of seeds and the money's just sort of come in from all that over years, you know. And being a part of things that are kind of iconic. I mean, I own half the movies you've been on in, in, uh, on DVD and yeah. millions of others do. So, um, one thing I've always wondered, are you friends with Pamela Adlon? Yeah. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. I love her show. Better Things yeah. is one of my favorite shows out there. I haven't gotten a chance to see it, but I think she's unbelievably talented and we've worked together a lot. We've been friends and mommy friends and super talented and deserves just well-deserving of all of it. It's good. Yeah. Okay. So um, let's talk about The Voice. I don't, I've never, I don't watch The Voice, but I know that you were on it. And yeah. uh, that seems like quite a, that seems like kind of a big deal. I mean, it's a big show. You're not some nobody coming in who's like 21 years old. How yeah. did you manage to swing all that? Well, it was again sort of synchronicity because I was, I had gone through a little period of time where I wasn't singing as much at all and I missed it and I was kind of, a little bit sad or going through a little like just a little midlife crisis period going into my turn 50 and I was feeling a little anxiety and I was like I had to do a lot of internal work on myself to figure out what was going on with me and what I realized was going on with me was that I just wasn't doing what I loved so much anymore and then I think when you do that you start to you start to put yourself in a little cave because mm -hmm. you're keep doing what you love no matter what age you are or whatever so I started saying yes to singing again, and this woman had asked me to sing a song, acoustic, just me on guitar for her Balcony TV LA show, mm -hmm. which is on the internet, and they have it all over the world, Balcony TV LA, Balcony TV Sweden, Balcony TV, you know, all over. Cool. I'd gone to a party at her house that she hosted for a director friend of mine named Malcolm, and um, she ended up asking me at that party if I would sing on her balcony show. So I was kind of like, no, I'm not quite ready yet. I'd rather have my band for that. And mm -hmm. she said, no, just you on guitar. And that felt really vulnerable to me, but it also felt super authentic. And, and, it, and it made me scared. So I thought that's all the more reason why I should do it. Because mm. it's scared in a good way, like push yourself in a good way, you know. Mm -hmm. so I said yes to it. And you can see it. It's up on okay. balcony. LA if you look up EG Daily's and it's just one little acoustic song that I've written. What's the lady who lives across the road? See her husband pass three years ago with a fuzzy robe and a shaky hand. Where's the loneliness like a Shortly after that, she had asked me, for some weird reason, 
or beautiful reason, she asked me if I was interested in hosting a few bands for the show because she just liked my personality and knew that I understood music and writing. And so I was like, that sounds beautiful. Yes. So I started hosting some of the bands and we ended up hosting them at my house. And then I just started really enjoying these bands from Sweden and Germany and touring and coming through my house. And I got to have these like amazing little private concerts on my balcony in my home. Nice. Overlooking the city. And I just enjoyed it so much because it was all about music and the beauty of music. What was my roots, which is what I loved. So she then called me up and asked me if I, you know, she called me and said, I, I hope you don't get mad at me, but I, I got you an audition for The Voice. <laughs> And I was like, no, they're not gonna they're not gonna put me on that show and my kids are gonna think it's a little weird of me at this age and mm-hmm. my kids, you know, are talented and they think I'm really talented too, but I didn't wanna make them feel like mommy looks kind of silly trying to but I then I remembered, you know, more importantly than people pleasing and looking silly is what makes you happy. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go ahead and say yes to that invitation. And she put me together with this guy named Lee Miles, who's an amazing artist and producer. And he helped me figure out the songs to sing, and so did she. And we went to the audition, and I just went there to have fun. And I I made it past that first round and second round and third round. And over a period of like five months of auditioning, I got on The Voice. Wow. Did they, I mean, I'm assuming people knew who you were. I, and when I say people, I mean people behind the scenes, producers, they, directors. They did, but because I hadn't had a record deal in years that I was just putting out my own music, it still qualified me. I was still a singer. I didn't have okay. a deal. I wasn't, I wasn't signed anywhere. Yeah, I was popular with Rugrats and my movies, but the singer in me was still in there screaming to get out, even nearing 50. That's amazing. Screaming to get out. Yeah. I had to listen to it. And so I did it, and that night on that stage was when they finally put all the pieces together, like, hey, aren't you Dottie from Pee Wee? And hey, aren't you Tommy Pistols on Rugrats? And hey you're the voice on the voice now. And mm-hmm. Hey, you're the voice of the person we've grown up to. And yeah. that person that I've been, which is the voice of many things, including speaking up and my piece of, you know, speaking my mind and sharing my truth and being the person that I, you know, that I feel like I have a lot of things to share with the world, deep rooted, spiritual, deep. Right. I felt like all of that kind of came together for me on that stage. That's great. Wow. I, I love the voice. It was an amazing experience. Good. I unfortunately I should know, but since I don't watch the show, how did it even turn out? I, well, I ended up on Team Blake, which was okay. great. Okay. And I ended up being on there for some rounds, maybe three three rounds. I got knocked off because I don't think I picked the right song. That's a key thing, you know. You pick the right song. Uh, picked kind of a slow song. I should have picked a faster, more feisty song. Uh. In the air. Being with you gets me that way I watch the sunlight dance across your face And I've never been this swept away The whole world just fades away The only thing I hear is the beating
bigger myth, the bigger piece was my, one of my daughters was going through a little rough time. You know, you're kind of sequestered and she was just needing me. And so, you know, I had to call the people at home and say, can you drive her to me tonight? Yeah. And I'd, I'd sneak out of the hotel and I'd sneak into the car and I would just hold her. Yeah. So it was a pivotal time. And I just saw like my kid was struggling preteen and really having a rough time and mommy wasn't there. And so I just felt like it was important to, um, give her as much as I could. So I was literally sneaking her there and holding her and just trying to be there for her, but you weren't allowed to leave. So it was really kind of tearing my heart. And then I think the night before my battle round, I didn't sleep the whole night because I, she was having a rough time and I, mm-hmm. I felt really, 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 um, pulled. And then I didn't sleep all night and then come the battle round, I just felt really rocky and shaky and unslept, yeah. kind of just not grounded. And I just sort of was nervous and, and, and it sort of knocked me off my ground. So it was mm. a sad moment for me because it was a pivotal time, but it was also really important to me to take care of my child's, my child, you know? And so yeah. I got off and as, as sad as it was for me, because I felt it was giving me a second wind as sad as that was, I knew my kid needed me and that was more important than sure. all the money and fame and, you yeah. know, personal glory that I could get for myself. I knew I could sing whether I sucked on that one battle round or not, or I was nervous and faltered and hadn't slept the whole night. That wasn't the most important thing at the moment. It was my beautiful child. And, sure. so, yeah. you know, so makes sense. Yeah, I got knocked off, and if I had stayed on, I would have been sequestered longer, and right. I, I ended up being able to take care of my kid. Good. Okay. Yeah. Do you have? When are you at your happiest? When you're doing all of these different creative things, when do you think you're at your best? When I'm with my family, and we're all laughing and hanging out doing music, like that kind of moment at home when we're like, but you're talking about like, in like what respect? Like, how do you well, mean? I mean, that kind of answers the question in a broader sense, for sure, that you're happiest or at your best when, you, when you're with your family. I tell you, like, I love that. When we sit around here and we do music, all of us, it's beautiful. But the other thing I would have to say is whenever I'm in a recording studio singing, it's just a really – something about being in a studio, having the headsets on and getting kind of into the music and letting my voice soar. There's yeah. something really that chemistry that happens in my body when I'm doing that. So I'd say that, like anytime I'm in behind a mic, really, when I'm doing voices, okay, doing characters, when I'm singing, singing though turns on something else in me. It's there's such a chemistry that happens when you sing. Sure. Music. So there's something about music, but doing cartoons and voices and hearing myself back in my head, there's something just really cool about that for me. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. What are you What are you doing primarily today? What I don't I don't even know. I don't. Yeah, well, I'm doing, um, I just was in Nashville doing some writing and com- some music, some things I'm executive producing with someone for some soundtrack stuff. We're, we're trying to get in some soundtracks that are really cool. Okay. So I've just done those. So we're, we're, we're pitching those, but I just did some recording on that in Nashville a few weeks ago. And then um, I've done some indie features recently, some really cool little roles. I'm trying to do more film acting. Okay. Uh, I'm doing a show right now that I'm one of the producers on, it's an animated show. And the main creator, producer, lives in, has a studio in Atlanta named Charles West. And he's, he's kind of like the African-American Walt Disney. Oh. He's really amazing with animation. And he's just created this show called Nubbin and Friends and cast me as Nubbin. And hmm. 
and now I'm a producer on it. Um, so that's coming out, and that's going to be launched, and that's got a lot of A-list kind of actors jumping in to do voices. So it's cool. really kind of cool. Okay. So I'm doing that. That's that's launching. We're doing that. We'll start recording that this year. So there's just like just continuing to make music, write music, record yeah. music, do more voices, do more animation shows. Curious George got picked up for another season. Great. You know, Rugrats is out all over the place again on Slack. Sure. Just you know, just continue to do yeah. find new stuff. You know, okay. do, sure. I'd love to do some more new, really incredible acting roles. I like to work with some of the more artsy, amazing produce directors, you know, mm-hmm. like the you know, even though Tarantino's having a little Yeah go down, but he's still pretty crazy genius. Yeah. I'd love to work with him again. I would love to work with him. Not again, yeah. but with him. Right. I know he knows my work because I met him. He was he was somebody I met at a coffee shop once. Well, actually, I went to a coffee shop and I see this strange guy and he pulls me over and he goes, "Aren't you E.G. Daly?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And he's like, "You, you know, me and my friends always had this theory about you that you were the good luck charm for all the first time directors." And I was kind of like, "What are you talking about?" And he goes, "Like all the movies you did, like Valley Girl, you were the common denom- denominator. She broke, that director broke, and Peavy's Big Adventure, Tim Burton broke, and." <laughs> These movies, the directors was their first big project and you were in all those projects and they all broke. And I was like, that's a really cool thing. And then I jokingly said, I thought that was about all the men that I dated, that they all became <laughs> famous and wealthy. And and then I said, thanks. And he goes, when I wanted to hire you for my first project, I was going to hire you for that reason. I was like, that's so cool. And I said, well, if you decide to direct again, you need yeah. me, call me up. And then he told me the movie he directed. And I went to my car and I called my friend. I said, who directed Reservoir Dogs? <laughs> <laughs> Tarantino, you know, so that was really beautiful, and you know, yeah. I don't, I don't know, I should have known. I knew he looked familiar. I thought he was just like some interesting actor because I right. didn't together. But there are people out there that he knew like lines from movies of mine. And of course, he, knew, he was really on it all. So I kind of would like to work with him again and maybe have some kind of John Travolta, yeah, Virgins, you know, some kind of role that kind of really puts me back out to where I can start doing more interesting roles and epic projects again. I could totally see that. I could see you in a Tarantino movie for sure. Yeah, I'd like to. He gets off on that. Yeah. I work with Cassavetes always hires me. Nick Cassavetes is a great director and he hires me all the Mm -hmm. time. And I love that. I love when they just call me in, you know, they know me. me And so, so yeah, I'm sure I'm hoping this year to get some more. Cool really move into some more really cool acting and soundtrack work with those. Cause I always do a song in all the movies I do. Yeah. And I always end up getting songs in the movies, even the mo- the movie, uh, mothers and daughters that I recently did with Susan Sarandon and Sharon Stone. And it was a movie uh-huh. called daughters. I don't, I don't think it did real well, but it had a really great cast and I ended up doing a role in that movie. And then of course they end up using a couple of my songs in that film too. Oh, interesting. I haven't seen that movie. I'll have to yeah. check it out. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, one of my listeners who uh, had requested you as a guest as well, his name's Vandal. He oh, had, um, he yeah, had, what? yeah, Vandal Truong. I think he's Vietnamese. Hope I don't get that wrong, Vandal. Anyway, um, he uh, is a big fan of Fandango. And yeah. he asked if you had any stories about Fandango. Well, yeah, Fandango was Kevin Costner's Kevin Costner was just starting to break open. And I remember mm-hmm. the director and a lot of people telling me, oh, this guy Kevin is going to break open really big soon. They're expecting a lot from him. And he was just like this regular old kind of country-ish kind of rugged guy. And 
we hung out a lot. Like I hung out with them there in these podunk hotels and the director, Kevin Reynolds, we all just kind of hung out and, you know, he was just a doll. He was this really humble kind of non, you would never expect him to have blown up as huge as he did. Really? He was really not like pretentious or snobby. Like some people I've seen that, that kind of act the act. Um, he really was down to earth and real, and so I didn't really have, I didn't really think anything or know anything. I just know that he and I hung out and it was really fun. And, and, um, that particular movie Fandango, I remember walking, we stayed in this really podunkian motel. And I remember walking past some of the motel rooms where the windows, you could see through the windows and there was mm -hmm. a guy in the window and he was really angry and he called me into his room and he's like, you know, he knew I was a cast member. He was one of the grips or whatever. And he goes, it was a weekend we were off and he said, do you know how to cut hair? And I was like, <laughs> no. And he goes, well, I need a haircut. And the hair lady keeps promising me she'll cut my hair. And we've been shooting and I, I need a damn haircut. And he goes, could you just try to cut my hair? <laughs> he, he handed me these little rinkety scissors. And I went into his room and I cut his hair. And <laughs> I did my very best because you know, he seemed so desperate. Yeah. And it wasn't bad either. And that was the beginning of my haircutting hobby. <laughs> Is that still a hobby for you? I mean, I do my dad's hair. He's 88 <laughs> now. And I do like, I used to do my old assistant's boyfriend's hair. Like he wouldn't go to anybody but me. And I went do like my own and my, you know, yeah, it's a weird little strange thing that happened in that movie. That's the oh. trivia I got on that movie. Cool. Very cool. Okay. I want to ask you something. And, and I wonder as... Uh, you know, a grown-up woman with kids. If you, how you look back on nudity in Valley Girl? First of all, I did not want to do it. Hmm. I was really upset about it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I did not want to do it at all. It was like I remember getting the movie, and they said they wanted me to do a topless scene, and I told my ma manager at the time and my agents that I didn't want to do it. That they need to, you know, make it to where I didn't have to do that, but that I would do the role. And my manager was like, oh, don't worry. The director will work with you. So my agent at the time didn't have my back. And I remember feeling really resentful about it. And mm. when I got to the set, Martha had sat me down. And I sat on the floor with her, the director, in the bathroom before that shot. And I cried. Mm. And I just said, I don't want to do this. This feels really like unnecessary, yeah. exploit of nudity. And she was like, no, it's needed. It's going to be okay. It just shows your vulnerability. And she was right. I mean, it did show vulnerability because I was vulnerable. Yeah. But I didn't want to do it. I hated it. And I was angry at the representation that I had at the time. And Martha was beautiful, though. Martha was very supportive. And she was a woman, so it made it better for me. And that was, you know, that was that. As far as my kids, I wasn't worried so much in the future about what my kids would see. Because to, to be honest with you, I've done other nudity. Hmm. Did, I did almost full nudity in a project. I did a little movie called Street Music when I was like 18 or 19 years old. Mm, I've never and seen I that one. Shower scene with someone. And I think I had to do nudity. I'm pretty sure I had to do some nudity in that. I do a shower scene. I was like, I hadn't even had a shower with a man in my life before that movie. So then my first shower with a man was in front of a crew of a bunch of people. Oof. But. And anyway, I didn't I didn't have a problem with that one because that one really seemed real, like mm. necessary. But it turned out when I see the film, it, it really did kind of add to the vulnerability of that scene. So looking back, 
it worked out okay, but at the moment I hated it. Yeah. And yeah. as far as my children, you know, I think art is art, and we think there's nothing wrong with nudity. I think it's quite beautiful sometimes, mm -hmm. and it, I don't have any issue about the body. Mm -hmm. I think it's a matter of how you're using it or if it's being exploited or somebody's taking advantage of you, then that's different. That's why I asked the question that way, because yeah. I'm not I'm not judging or criticizing either way. I no. wondered what you thought about it and, you know, 35 years would, later or something. I would do nudity in a second if it was if it was really pertinent to the, the content that you're the scene or the, yeah. the motion of the scene and it was real. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Yeah. Okay. I, this matters if you're feeling like I was I was in their distribution deal. I was one of their topless scenes. It was a distribution mm. deal concept. Yeah. It wasn't about the beauty of the scene. It was like, oh, we need three pairs of boobs in this movie for distribution. I've heard about that. Yeah. And that's not that to me is not cool. Yeah. Okay. But that's that's how the business works then. Yeah. Yeah. I could I've heard of these stories before, especially in those eighties kind of teen sex comedies yeah. that were so popular back then. Yeah. A lot yeah. of that. Um, okay. Well, look, you gave me more time than I thought I would get. I'm really grateful. I, I have two last questions. Yeah, go right ahead. No problem. It's fine. Okay. okay. Um, I'm always curious if people have to any... Be honest, John, to be honest, John, I just didn't know what kind of an interview this was going to be. And your oh. interview is really beautiful and very thorough and very deep. And so that's why I'm not being so picky about that few minutes. Oh, good. Okay. Really just, I've done a lot of interviews and sometimes people just kind of... It's the same questions. It's sure. the same. And so anyway, so go on. Well, I'm glad you said that. And that's um, <clears throat> that's why I purposely was trying to kind of focus more on the music side, because I, I, I assume you get asked about Rugrats and things like that. I've just I've been a fan of yours. I mean, it's a voice that I remember from being 12, 13 years old, you know. And so this is my little way of honoring you is just trying to shine a spotlight on you and what you've done and your accomplishments. So that's, that's really all it is. Um, well, yeah. And I'd say the biggest accomplishment is my kids. Uh, well, absolutely. Yeah. And I could, you know, I can tell by your, your answers, that's how you feel. Um, so I'm curious if there are any regrets, if you have, when you look back, if there are any, any decisions that you made that maybe you wish you hadn't because things may one. have turned out differently. I think there was maybe two. No, no, really just one. Might okay. Get a okay. Um, well, there is, it's like one and a half, really. The song I picked in the voice for my mm. battle, I just wished I had picked a different song that day. Mm -hmm. The other, the other one was I was cast in a Chuck Norris movie mm. and I was supposed to be his daughter in the movie and it was shooting in Calgary or somewhere beautiful. And I would have just gone to ride horses and be in this beautiful ranch. And, and I, for some strange reason, passed on that project because I thought, and eh, it's going to be like, whatever. I don't know. That was the time when I was working a lot. And that was one of the decisions I wish I didn't make because I didn't end up doing any other projects at that time. And I just felt like it was a bad move. Like hmm. it would have been really nice. And Chuck, Chuck, Chuck Norris was really cool. He was a cool man. Good. And, um, I thought he did cool things. You know, he was, and I loved being around horses. So it was just a choice that I made and I don't really remember why. Um, oh, actually, there was one other one, one other okay. but I chose not to do that movie and I regretted it because I could have been on a ranch riding horses and uh -huh. instead I was sitting around doing not a lot at that moment. Right after we did Valley Girl and, you know, Nick, Nick Cage was a friend of mine for, mm. from high school and stuff. So I was, I had a long history with him anyway. Nick and I were both kind of hit up 
were both solicited by this agent or manager mm -hmm. who was really good and he had she had wanted to sign Nick and I from Valley Girl. Okay. And Nick said yes to her and I said no. Because I went I went with somebody a little bit a different manager, maybe I don't know what the reason was. Maybe they were bigger or more popular at the time. And that decision was a big one because I watched how beautiful she worked with Nick and how mm. detailed he was about his next choices. And I always wished I had gone with her. Mm. It was Eileen or something. But that was one of those other, that was it. Those yeah. were my okay. I wish I'd been there because I really liked how she built his career at that point. And I was sort of like, although I don't regret any of my career, I did great things. I just, sure. I like something about that. So yeah. those were the, mm. those were it. Okay. Well, let's end on a better note then. What is What are your tastiest memories from your career? You've seen a lot. You've dated a lot of people. When you look back and you just think, I can't believe that happened to me. What is that thing? Career-wise? Yeah. Like something great? Well, whatever. I mean, you know, when it, when you sit back and when I say those things, what, what comes to mind? Oh, there was that time I got, uh, you know, I talked to Michael Jackson or there was that time uh I, whatever. What's really beautiful is when I did um, Happy Feet 2, mm -hmm. and I got flown to um, Australia, which was really lovely. I'd never been there, and I got to work with Robin Williams and have oh. a lot of beautiful quality time with him, and one day he chartered a big yacht, and we all went out into the water and had lunch, and it was just a really beautiful experience, and I got to spend some really nice time with him, and at the time he had a fiance who was lovely too, but I just, I had a really special connection time with him. So I would say that. And then on that yacht, there was also Hank Azaria who I was friends with already. So I got to spend time with him and Elijah Wood, who I got to spend time with. And I'd say that whole trip was had a lot of magic about it because like I worked every day with Elijah and the car would pick us up and we'd go to work. And then on our weekends, I would run around with Elijah. To, sorry, I'd run around with Elijah to, the zoo and mm. we would go to the, the zoo and go to all Elijah's a foodie and we would go to these really cool little restaurants all over town. So I just think there was something very beautiful about the quality of the time I got to spend with some really amazingly talented people in, in, in Australia and then working yeah. on, you know, on that movie, which I got to work with common and pink and mm -hmm. I worked with a lot of really cool people on that project. So I would say it was just a really felt very artistic I got to do a lot of beautiful work in the movie. I got to work with George Miller, who I love as a director. It was like my first time working with him. There were just so many components about that project, I would say, that I would I would put up there in my top, one of my tops. And then I would say, like, my one-woman show, Listen Closely, was one of my top projects, too. And you, that's available on my website. My one-woman autobiographical musical is on my website called Listen Closely. And then I also have a seminar called um, Up Close and Personal, The Journey with E.G. Daly on voiceover. So... All those are some of my top, top eight. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for talking to me, EG. I've had a fascination with you for so long and thank I'm really you. grateful. I've been wanting this to happen for almost three years. So I'm really grateful that we did. I'm glad you're persistent and I appreciate that. And <laughs> sure. And I'll tell everybody to go to my, follow me on Instagram at real EG daily and Facebook, but it's real EG daily. Um, and that's it. There you have it. EG daily. Hope you guys enjoyed that. That was a long time coming. I've been waiting a long time for that. Now, 
Guys, she's serious. She is all over the place on social media. So any platform you want, she's there. She's very active on Facebook, Instagram. She posts a lot of videos on YouTube. Her her uh, website is active. So if you're interested in keeping up to date with EG, go track her down on any one of these platforms. Obviously, she loves it. And that's how we let these people know we care. And I'll just tell you this, EG is gorgeous. And so when she posts a new picture on Instagram, you're going to be happy because she looks amazing. So anyway, do what you can to support these people, please, as always. Now, next week is, uh, is another mega producer. Done a ton of stuff you'll know and love. And his name he produced one of the soundtracks that EG sang on. In fact, his name came up on here. So maybe you remember, maybe you don't, but it's going to be a big one next week. It's long. It's one of those ones that I love where you just go right down the resume. Tell me about this one. Tell me about that. What was this person like? How'd you feel about that? That's what I love. And that's what next week's episode is going to be. It's long and it's dense and it's good. Now, if you guys are new to this, this is how you do it. You go to Facebook and you like our page. You can communicate with us that way if you want. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Uh, I have a ton of interviews already in the can, so requests or I'll hear them and I'll listen to them, but I may not act on them immediately, but I'll do my best. And uh, huge thanks, as always, to my buddy, my right-hand man, Yan, the man, Makevich. Thank you, pal, for doing what you do so well. We will talk to you guys next week. Oh, by the way, we have a bonus episode coming out pretty much every weekend for this whole month, including here in a few days. So I hope you like content. You're going to get a ton of it from us. We'll talk to you later. 